Dennis. Kev. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I am uh I'm pretty good. Hey, I had a I had a question for you today. Uh, okay. You recently started playing a little bit of chess. Yes, I did. And you're getting a little bit more serious about it. My question for you is like you you have you ever heard people I mean people use chess for an analogy for like everything. Mm-hmm. But have you ever heard chess as an analogy for computer security? Never. Never? Never. Oh, really? Okay. I mean, I uh, no, I, I have, as I learn more about chess and I do play more chess, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. I am thinking like, oh, I should, yeah, I'm, I'm, I find myself working analogies into my everyday conversations. Like, yeah. oh, he's arranging my pieces on the board I, and we got to put our chess pieces in place and yeah, things that, like that. That's, but nothing deeper than that. Yeah. That was my, my question for you is like, now that you're learning, like, do you think there's any... And like, so I, I'm also a chess enthusiast. I'm, I would say, listen, I can compete with the best 11 year olds in the state of Minnesota and lose. I've proven that time and time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, nothing beats losing to an 11 year old who's oh, like, man. Way well, I can't, I, I can't even imagine you're oh, over 300 the points. You're they're way over a, me. They're sitting on a phone book, you know, oh, and, my gosh. And just with their arms crossed. Ah. Nothing beats losing to an eleven-year-old. But my I would point love to being, watch that though. okay, um, you know, having uh, having been a chess player, I, and I'm more active now. I, t- I took probably twenty years off or whatever. But the, my my uh, my thought is, uh, I hear it used as an analogy in different situations, including cybersecurity. Like if I, I googled it and I saw like, there's quite a bit of our articles and stuff like that, and uh, I don't think it has anything to do with. <laughs> Cybersecurity, <laughs> like I don't, or certainly at least the skills to be a good chess player. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think, um, or the skills to be a good. I don't think if you're a good cybersecurity person, it, it's going to make you at all a good chess player, um, <laughs> and vice versa. So I'm just kind of curious what your take was on that. Well, I I don't know about that. I mean, I think you know, characteristics of you know, big chess pl- or good chess players are being able to keep the whole board in mind, right? So, like, you know, focusing on like okay. localized areas. I've just inspired you to make one of these analogies. That's, that wasn't my intention. I, I just wanted okay. To- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I feel like I'm getting goaded in, into making a, a awesome cybersecurity chess well, analogy right now. Hmm. Okay, first let's commit to the fact that neither of us believe the premise to be true that chess is a good analogy for cybersecurity. Let's commit to that first. Uh, (laughs) And then second, if I was going to make the argument for it, which I'm not, this is not today's Mm -hmm. secret. Oh, it's not? Okay. I would say that uh, just kind of like what I was saying about like there's always an 11-year-old out there that can beat me, as well as every other age, but that is the one thing of (laughs) like there's always somebody better than you at chess. And there's always somebody who's eventually going to beat you or like you're eventually going to lose. And maybe cybersecurity, you could say, is like you're in a constant state of like, yeah, somebody could breach our defenses and you definitely can lose a a game of chess. Um, But, you know, actually, I'm also a backgammon player. Do you have you ever played backgammon? I actually don't know the answer to this. Not a backgammon. I have not. I do not know how to play. And I don't even really know the premise of the game Mm. either, to be honest. Okay. 
Um, well, without getting into it, for the backgammon players out there, I think maybe that actually would be, a, and I guess there's few, like, <laughs> also chess isn't a good analogy because very few people like actually play chess. Like a lot of people know the rules to chess, mm-hmm. um, but very few people, I think, understand enough about chess to make it a useful uh, analogy. But say I'm going to do the same for backgammon. That actually does have a lot more to do with uh, security because it's it, it is a lot about a lot more directly about risk management and uh, against probability, right? So, um, giving your your opponent opportunities, you're trying to, to to reduce the probability that they get the more common roles you're playing in a way. Uh, so, yeah, if if you wanted to make a, an analogy, I would say backing in. Or I, I'm not a poker player, but uh, I'm sure that that uh, poker is the better analogy there too. But yeah, so whirlwind, whirlwind opening there about mm. uh, about something that I'm sure yeah, is going to connect with a lot of people. <laughs> well, I will definitely be visiting the backgammon Wikipedia page after this. Oh, I could teach you how to play backgammon too. Actually, <laughs> as you know, we won't get it in, into it today. But I lost my primary backgammon partner recently, so mm. I, I mm. could use a new backgammon friend. I can um, cool. Well, should we dive into it early? Because I'm excited about this one. Let's do it. You're hot. You're excited. You're you're <laughs> asking hot. me I'm when I was going to be able to jump on. So I'm still uh, hot, even though you have done your best to douse the fire <laughs> that is Kev's intense premise here's uh let me hmm. knock knock <laughs> yes <laughs> who's there tennis okay thank you <laughs> uh secret secret who don't shift left wow don't shift left okay all oh, right maybe i should say don't shift out of left field huh <laughs> There's All right, you're going to do is some that the work first for pun? us here. Is that the first pun on no, the podcast? No, it's not it the first pun actually. on the podcast. Okay, I've well, it's the, like a second I've actually third. marked the podcast explicit so that uh, I can make puns, you know. <laughs> okay. A lot of criticism. All right. So the what's podcast up is it? marked by explicit. We, you could be the first person to uh, to swear right now. But uh, Wait, I, why I'm going to make on, you do on, some work here. Why are we marked explicit? Because like I don't want to edit out swear words if and there are some like uh, there is some a little bit of profanity maybe once or twice in some of the throwback episodes. Ah, uh, okay, okay. And uh, right. like, what's the difference? Like, kids aren't going to listen to a information security podcast anyway. Hey, why are you derailing <laughs> my awesome? <laughs> you're just premise? you're hitting me. You're hitting me Dennis, with left field uh, stuff all over the place Dennis, at the beginning Dennis, of this episode. Dennis, don't don't you? We agree. Let's restart not to do that. this. Okay. We're going to leave this all in there, but let's. Dennis, Kev, I have a secret. <laughs> what is it? Don't shift left. No. Okay. I can't wait to hear this. Okay. Well, I'm going to make you do some work because okay. you're super cool. I don't even tell you what the premises are anymore mm-hmm. because I don't, I want you to be surprised. I want okay. you to be on your feet, but uh, you're, I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of work of like when I, when we talk about shift left in the space that we work in a lot. Um, what does that mean? Let's, let's ground it for people. I'll, I'll chime in there, but why don't you kick it off so that I at least am convinced that you know what I'm talking about. Okay. So shifting left, I, you're talking about moving more of these security assurance activities 
like mm-hmm. uh, SAST and um, maybe secure design reviews. I, I As- think you got to break those out for people because not everybody's you know necessarily going to be in the applications or software development business. SAST, you're talking about static analysis, but in general, you're talking about security capabilities that might make software more secure that you apply you know, at some point in your life cycle, right? Yes, exactly. Right. So as the development process becomes more iterative and fast paced, um, we are trying to move more of our software security activities into maybe the development pipeline so that as they're building code, as they're deploying code, the security test can run there in an automated fashion. And it's trying to move away mm-hmm. from just the, we do all the work, we deploy the code, and then that's the first time that all of the security stuff happens. I think I think you have a more mature version of shift left than shift hmm. left actually deserved credit for. Okay, because shift left isn't about doing anything like faster, right? Like it's about doing it earlier in the life cycle. And you brought up a good point <laughs> that we're gravitating towards a series of these modern life cycles. In many cases, and I want to actually touch on like the old, the, the the traditional waterfall later, but in these modern life cycles of, of you know, in CICD pipelines and, and you're going every, you know, you're releasing four times a day or four times an hour, whatever, whatever your scale is, I don't think left the, the, the idea of getting closer to the developer me is less important, right? Because it could, as long as it happens within one of those sprints, whenever it happens, it's going to be okay because the, the issues are going to get fixed on the next sprint, right? Well, I don't necessarily know if I agree with that because I think that tight feedback loop, right? I mean, that, that to me personally is a training opportunity, right? I make the mm. mistake, something slapping my hand immediately after I do mm-hmm. that or, or soon thereafter. Okay, but- so right. there's not but, a, a a gap in time, right? So like, well, I, you know, let's put it this I, way. I know that like it, it, before spell check, you know, as a kid growing up, right? You know, you write your report, you turn it in, mm-hmm. you get it back from the teacher and she's correcting all my misspelled words, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Like I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to, uh, if, if that's really sticking with me. But once you get Microsoft Word, you start typing these things, you're getting that red underline immediately. Yeah, you're going to realize, um, you're going to realize that you did the thing wrong, right? And I, no, I still cannot spell the word beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but now we have autocorrect. So now I, we have like that, not only the detection of the error, okay, but the fix. But that's a different us. thing too. That's not shifting left, right? So your so your point of here's here's that let's let's talk about that modern life cycles. My point is that as we get faster and faster and the loop is smaller from developer to production, mm-hmm. when it happens in that path line from developer to production, they're always getting relatively immediate feedback because the results from the production, like say that it's an exit gate right before it deploys and does the test, they're getting that and that deploy you know, fails and they're getting that, um, you know, that feedback, either it fails or it goes forward, they're getting that feedback within an hour. So do they need it right at time of type? Do they need the spell check? Maybe that's okay. Um, And I'll I'll talk a little bit about that, but just shifting left, if I take that, you know, that uh, 
security code automated code review and move it or what does it matter if it runs on the developer's desktop or if it runs at the release gate if the time to deploy is one or four hours i i think that because my general premise is that as the timeline's getting shorter that means less i would agree with you yes if we're talking in terms of just shifting less if we're talking in terms of just shifting left there's other things that you need to do which mm-hmm. I think are more important, but it's not encapsulated by that idea, shift left. And that's actually kind of why I'm saying don't shift left is because we need a new model in our head to break down this uh, thing um, in a better way or more constructive way for improving your software security timing. Um, now let's, for a sec, can I go and talk about that old waterfall thing too? Let's do it. I'm not totally convinced <laughs> That, that that shifting left in those situations really matters too much, or or all the time at least. I can contrive some situations where it might matter a lot. Like mm-hmm. you make some mistake, and then it's caught at the very end of a development process, and for some reason it drives you to have to significantly refactor your code, like uh, replace one uh, you know one uh, major core library with another or something like that right I can sort of conceive of that but a lot of those mistakes too when when you do shift left depending on how far you shift left you know your coverage of those major issues that might require you to refactor is actually better late in the game right like because you have all of the code being built or you have all of the interconnected system and you have you know the taint analysis from a, a complicated engine it has more visibility when the thing is more code complete, those spell check ones and the you know the syntax highlighting and linting engines that run faster, closer to the dev, they don't tend to catch those major problems as well early in the lifecycle because they may over, they, they may only, for instance, have context of the file that's opened in the IDE. They may not you know do full you know dependency tracking and, and going back and things like that. Yeah, fair enough. But, on uh, that? You know, okay. Yeah, no. Sure, I want, I want enough, you to push back. But- but things have, you know, we're not, I, I don't think that the concept of shift left is to say abandon anything that would ever take a lot of time and replace it like static analysis wise, just to use this example and replace it with linting only, right? It's like Here, a time and a place for these things. And you know what? I, it, there is value in running in those the centers. T- there is a correct time. There is a com- correct place. And there is a correct version of a capability and a capability should maybe, I mean, the, the activity should maybe exist in a couple of different shapes along the way too. That's why I'm saying that shift left shift left doesn't tell you that like the idea of doing something as early as possible gives you no insight as to what is the optimal version of this capability at the optimal time. And maybe there's more than one version of that thing along the way, right? So if I see an organization that's struggling with this big static analysis hook at the end that's setting people back, my approach is not to get them to run that static analysis on the developer's desktop earlier. My approach is to deconstruct that thing and create versions. So, okay, 90% of the defects are this type of thing. Let's, you know, blacklist that library, write some tools early on to catch the easy version of those things and decompose it. Now, does that make sense? That's is, that totally I, I know it, it may be me. a tautology that I'm picking on left, but left doesn't tell left just says, move it earlier. And 
there's some reasons that left also creates some problems. Like let's say we move something left and like, let's say somebody, we, we have been, you know, we, we've been involved in doing design reviews, uh, at the end or out of being in a project, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're re- reviewing design of a product has been b- de- deployed for three to five years or something mm-hmm. like that, right? R- yep. Routinely. Obviously, that is something that you would want to do earlier, <laughs> like if it's never been done before. But let's say we shift a little left mm-hmm. and we do it before release. But we don't, we're still doing pen test before the threat model, right? Now okay. that the pen testing process never benefited from moving the threat model left, right? We actually have to move the threat model in front of the pen testing so that those two capabilities can talk to each other and benefit. The threat modeling can improve the, the, the individual pen tests because they know about some architectural risks and the pen test output can Im- improve the overall threat modeling process, right? So tie, I, I, I Instead of shift left, there's an idea here that's like more important about getting the timing right between activities and including the activity of coding, right? So um, that is why I hate, and I was, you know, listen, five years ago, Kev would have been shift, shift this left, shift this left, shift this left. Like, you know, now Mm -hmm. I realize that it almost... It just is not a strong enough a uh, strong enough tautology for us to use. Like it doesn't capture, and there's I, we're not thinking often enough about intercapability connection like that. Like the making we're doing two things. We're already incurring the opportunity cost of doing those two things, but looking at how one activity can improve the other connecting capabilities. That's what we don't see a ton of in the application security space. We see a lot of things run in a vacuum where the plumbing could exist between them and make those two things better than independently. And shift left doesn't approach that problem or doesn't tackle that problem. Okay. Well, I mean, first off, you know, like like anything, there are nuances to this. So we're definitely, oh. I feel like we're mm. grasp, really grasping to the shift left and keeping a very, you know, black and white definition of it and poking holes in it, right? Just saying, well, pick I, up what you've got and, and move it, it just, to the left. And it's, it's gonna not be useful better. for, it's, it's just not useful to only think about doing something earlier. Think about doing something at the right time. And here, and then let's, the, yeah, you, you, know, you kind of, there's an, yes, uh, I get it. Right. I think that, I mean, okay. it's just a catchy phrase to say. That undermines like, and doesn't capture all the important stuff. It doesn't capture, let's, let's talk about the, you know, I don't know if you want to call it defense and a layered approach to something like mm-hmm. I want to run an early version. I want to do DAST before I get to pen test. Right, because I'm going to find 50% of what the pen test does using my scanner earlier in the life cycle, right? So I let me let me get a DAST thing in there so I get more immediate feedback because in some cases I'll I'll admit that that that's good, um, but that's like you know we're we're taking a a two type or, or, or two versions of a you know the pen test is going to be informed and actually you know, you can, again, make your pen test better by carrying forward some of those DAST results, right? Or, or you know, maybe then we don't have to do duplicate work. You can optimize the, those two things. But the idea of being able to cut an activity apart and running multiple versions with the correct level of rigor or intensity for the right 
at the right time to reduce friction, um, you know, while still optimizing the value of it or maximizing the the capability of it, right? We if we push pen testing too far left, then we're not going to have a complete system to catch the interoperability errors, right? Something like that. Yeah. I yes. Okay. And I but I don't know in this whole conversation I've been hearing like about pen testing as the main activity. No, you any activity. Pick any activity. Shifting you pick well, I'm an just activity. Saying, you right pick now. that pen You tell me I don't an activity. Think that is the activity at all. That you tell me an activity. About. People uh, do talk about that, right? I, I mean, I don't know. Design, you pick an activity. I don't know. So design reviews. Shifting design left. reviews. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Design reviews is perfect. I have seen people say, okay, well, while we're designing an application architecture, we're constantly threat modeling it. But they never, because that's iterative process or whatever, they they never are looking at the whole complete system because you have assets, right? Um, you have secondary assets, right? You have things like passwords. A password isn't something you're trying to protect. A password is a piece of metadata that's required by a control. That's it, it's it's a secondary asset. So the primary asset might be your database you're trying to protect. You put a password control in place, and now you have to worry about pass- protecting the password data as a secondary asset. Well, you're not going to necessarily know all of your controls initially when you're designing something, right? You're going to look at your assets. You're going to look at your trust boundaries. You're going to put a control in place, and then you've got to refactor and do another iteration of that. So you can do threat modeling too early to have useful context in the same way that shifting a pen test super far left. Uh, can can hurt you. So you need design principles up front, right? Which are a fra- uh, you know a fragment of of maybe what you would you do in an overall. Pr- you need to identify your assets. So there's parts of a threat model that you need to do early, but certainly you can't. You know there there becomes an optimal time to really vet a design, and in different development methodologies, that's going to be different times, right? A lot of people, you know, are are getting are jumping into you know unit test case driven development where they may not have an architecture until after some of their you know after the the user stories are, are developed and those unit test cases are driven, and they start to plumb together. Um, the architecture on the background, but at some point they do, they're, they're going to need to, if they want to avoid design flaws that might end up being security issues, they're going to have to document that architecture and think about it and ruggedize it to, to these types of problems. So design review is something that it's a great example of a lot of times it gets done too late, but you can do it too early too. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, doing it too late, where you're examining it because it's just never been done. I definitely think that that is a very popular and, and use use case, sure. right? Where it's just like, hey, you know what? This thing is really important that we wrote, and we never looked at it from our architecture. And I, I you know, it happens. Had an it for sure yeah. happens. Yeah, but but doing it too soon, I don't know. Like, I mean, mm. I just I'm not sure that I'm like. I'm not sure that people are like, oh, okay, we're we're taking one tiny component of this system and we just designed it and like we are we're gonna mm. threat model. Like I, I don't know that I've experienced examples of people threat modeling I, too much okay. that mm. I've firsthand. I mean, again, we have <laughs> at different the, at experiences the wrong zoom here, level. But- could could I could I convince you the idea of people doing security activities at the wrong zoom level like you mentioned like well what if there's four teams that are building components of a product 
Like let's say somebody's building a pacemaker. There might be four teams, you know, somebody's working on the hardware, somebody's working on the software, somebody's working on the update process, somebody's working on the programmer. Those projects are going to exchange some things like requirements early on, and they're going to they're going to define a communications protocol or whatever it is. But let's say each one of those separate teams does a threat model on their own. I think that that's great, but does it preclude later on the need mm. to threat model the <clears throat> overall system? Okay, I, in this example, I absolutely agree with you, and I have seen things where the the problem that you are theorizing has manifested itself, right? It's I, like you know what? I, I was almost <laughs> the shared secret for today was literally almost gonna be that, you know, something along the lines of the difference between a senior security resource and a more junior resource is being able to pick the right zoom level for a whole bunch of different things, right? If you get too close, uh like understanding the context of something, like I guess the simplest the simplest thing to pick to explain that that Zoom thing I'm talking about might be, and I don't want to get too far off topic, but I, I will just mention it. Of like, you look at a a a uh, maybe you're not sanitizing some type of input parameter within a particular piece of code, but then when you take one step back, you see that the source of data that's producing the input is actually very well trusted. Or something like that. So it's not, you know, it's not something that you really have to worry about mm-hmm. the the vector of that trust. So context, well, zoom level, I do think, and and then t- you know, as a part of that, I think deeply intertwined with that is the timing of something. And I'm just so my don't shift left thing is think more intelligently around where you can maximize the input of an activity and the scope, size, and structure of that activity. Maybe that thing needs to get broken into the Goldilocks, you know, mama bear, papa bear, baby bear, so that you can run Kevy baby bear? bear early on. Kevy bear? <laughs> Ruggles bear? Maybe you can run baby bear really, er, you know, early on so that they get 90%. But also, we're not doing that stuff right because there's just dangerous constructions that we could actually, you know, syntax highlight with very little other context. We're not doing it. We're relying on that big heavyweight thing to find all those little problems that we, you know, we have better yeah. ways to tackle. Yeah, I think the final thing that I want to say on this is that you're like I I do agree that like in these silos, you, right? You ten you, agree. You I, from a scale from zero to ten, <laughs> I, you I ten, ten agree. I, I ten or agree ten to agree. Okay, that the you know the most value is going to come out of looking at things as a whole from a design review perspective. Okay, and that has to happen I, when. Well, I'm not like it, it has to happen once you've actually designed all of the pieces that are going to be working together. So some, right? so sometimes people might have to shift their design review, right? No, but I would say, but mm-hmm. not necessarily because your, your example, <laughs> your one example where you're like, Hey, you know, you were protecting the passwords and that becomes an asset. And like, mm-hmm. you know, how do we make sure we're doing it right? Like I, I would argue that if you're not identifying the missing controls, for you know password protection when you're doing your threat model for the component that's protecting passwords you are just very you like you're just doing it wrong right well i i think that that's that's the easy that's the easy description of a hard problem in that when you design controls your controls then have secondary risk 
right? The control may not be perfect. The control may have like you're protecting a database using a password control, but obviously that's generated a whole second tier of how do we store secrets properly? How do we, you know, and that that's iterative, right? You mm-hmm. know, I mean, to the point where there's whole products out there that are hardware security modules to, to try to, you know, create a root level solution to a problem. And that's not unique to, the password control, every control is going to have, you know, secondary assets, attack surface and requires secondary controls. And you start creating the tiers and tiers. And it's actually probably the biggest thing that's the, the, the hardest thing to time box in a threat model is how many layers of that you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Like the hardest thing to time box in a pen test is like how deep on one issue are you going to go or something like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I think that the overall, and the, where I agree with you, though, is in the overall, right? Like it's making sure you take that overall perspective and how all the pieces fit together because, you know, with those siloed threat models, right? What happens when one silo is treating a piece of data as if it's top secret and confidential and making mm-hmm. sure that they're protecting it in the right way? And they are. But that mm-hmm. data gets passed to another module and that module has a different understanding and that data is not at the same level and they're not doing that. And I've mm-hmm. s- I've seen that before. So there. There's a lot of value there in seeing the um, interaction between pieces because often for like pen tests, and especially if this code bases are owned by different groups, right? Even when it comes to SAS, it's hard to identify these things maybe on a SAS perspective or a DAST or pen test perspective because they don't have that like you typically have, well, from the pen test perspective, don't have that mm-hmm. behind the scenes access, right? They're not seeing the B2B connections. Typically, you know, QA might be seeing that, but not knowing what to look for. But pen testers are usually treated much more as the black box attack this as a, you know, um, uh, outsider only. They're not getting access to the file systems. They're not getting access, direct access to databases to make sure to actually look mm-hmm. and see what's going on. And, and that's mm-hmm. where threat modeling is very valuable. And I agree that to get the most out of it, you want to have that, design pretty much well baked and, and a very good picture of you know all those mm-hmm. components that went and into it would you would you also agree it's pretty rare for pen testers to actually get results of a threat model and inform their their testing based on that um yes i would say like just if i had you know just judging based off of my experience with that you know it, yeah. mm-hmm. the number so, that have so, pen tests coming on the front end or excuse me threat models on the front end Official, right. you know, like, you know, not a internal work product type of thermo, like a actual, like, you know, mm-hmm. full blown. Yeah, that's that, that those would, I would say that that is the minority that uh, um, folks would choose to go that route. Okay, before I let you zero to 10 this, I have one more point to make on this very same thread of, okay, let's say we built a really good pacemaker or or yeah i mean and and but we in some way connected uh like that programmer usually that programmer is like near field right very low power that's going to be you know they trust they're going to trust the physical environment to that in some way now let's presume that later on the business context switches and the programmer 
installs a much higher power radio so that they can program all the pacemakers in a hospital wing at once. You need a way to re-trigger the threat model. And I guess that's maybe a little bit of a contrived example, but this happens a lot with like yeah, and you're also describing designed... the uh, premise of uh, Homeland Season 1. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, feel like... I don't watch it because it seems like too anti-Middle Eastern <laughs> for me. But the uh, uh, here's, here's a much more common example. We built this thing to get plugged in, and then we took it wireless, right? And we didn't – so the, the protocol was relying on being a cable with no trust boundary with – uh, the, the, the layer one and layer two network attack surface. But then all of our customers start being like wireless, wireless, wireless. And we, we put it on the Wi-Fi network of the, of the on-premise situation, right? Interesting. Whether it's camera or whatever. So you have, would you, would you feel like it's accurate to say like, you know, our control, it like kind of moved somewhere else on the board resulting in a discovered attack. I'm I'm going to check me. Did I just, Uh, did I just work in a perfect attack? Exactly. So, uh, okay. But we need a way to trigger that. And it's again about timing. We need to wait a way to trigger update and manage the thread model throughout the life cycle and throughout the operations and, and sustainment of the product. So, like it's not something you can just do once and forget. You got to think about when that thing has to occur forever. And to me, just the whole th- it, it's I've I've gone someplace and their whole appsec program is literally called shift left, you know, and it just doesn't capture for me the nuance and the the, the un I, and I swear I'm going to let you read it after this the inattent the inattentiveness towards capability interconnection, optimal timing, Mm -hmm. and right-sizing the activities based on when they're being executed. And because shift-left doesn't capture that, shift-left is all about like just earlier and earlier in terms of it. Like I just think we should pivot to a system or or, or some type of new thing that we can say like that, you know, like the DevOps paradigm shift or something like, you know, like of, of like that captures a little bit more at the heart of what we need to do to do something at the right time. Have you come up with a catchy name for, for this new movement? No, I'm not going to get into it. <laughs> so That's going to make me, we're this podcast is not going to make me a bill, billion dollars yet. So when I make a billion dollars, <laughs> then I'll come on and, and, uh, and advertise it. But yeah, you know, I mean, you know, you know what I, you know what I work on? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So on a scale, and let me, uh, I, I'm going to mail you a, a letter here. Um, post office is closed. I'll just drop it in the box. <laughs> okay. Okay. Dennis. Okay. Kev. And also we should recap the premise of the scoring because sometimes you forget like I'm, I trust that our audience at this point gets it, <laughs> but sometimes yeah, you I think that they then they are definitely wiser than me because I think episode okay. to episode my understanding shifts. It shifts yes. less. <laughs> I mean, you perfectly explain it in episodes one through three, and then episode four you forget it. Uh, episode uh, whatever this is. Uh, so I have a secret. I try to convince Dennis of some. A relatively bold statement around computer security today was application security, and the secret was don't shift left. And Dennis, you're going to rate this on a scale from zero to 10 on how much I convinced you that the premise is correct. 
And then you're going to open a secret envelope that I just mailed through U.S. Postal Mail Dropbox to you. Mm -hmm. And that contains, I believe KPMG handles the transport of it in some way too, like the Oscars. But that contains a number of how much I believe it to be true. And there's some sort of, of then metric to say, if I convinced you more than I believe it myself, then I did a really good job. But that's, I don't think ever happened. So. <laughs> I think that actually has happened, but. Uh... Mm. Okay, Dennis, on a scale of zero to 10, how okay. much do you believe now mm-hmm. that we've had this conversation that people should not shift left? Don't shift left. Okay. I will say that. If I just had to rate it off of that statement only, okay, that's not, not the, your no. Nuance. You're rating it off of my 35 minutes of yelling yeah. at you about okay. it. Okay, okay. Well, let's but, yeah, okay, but you let know me what? explain like the so premise. Much, to no, you no, again. no. I know the premise. Okay, but you're, you're you like <laughs> you come up with these <laughs> short, <laughs> pithy, freaking, uh, like. Do you yeah. not understand viral marketing of the podcast? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. How am I going to get right. people to click I know. I know. if I You're say right. You're click you should baby. optimize you should optimize <laughs> the timing and interdependencies of your security capability? Okay. 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 Don't so shift left is what is what do, is going to get sells, all the okay. all the Sam people pissed at me. They're going to start commenting on our LinkedIn and say a group of us. I, this uh, is I do know, not want. Uh, I don't want people leaving security. hate mail on my LinkedIn. This is not the goal of the podcast for me. Okay. <laughs> At least they're going to listen to it and hate you. They just hate you now because you're so <laughs> They just tall. hate me for free now. Okay. You're, yeah, I, you're tall. I didn't they have don't to know work you for being hated earlier. It's better okay. to be hated by somebody than them not even knowing you exist. Yeah, but That's this is like I have to, I'm taking time out of my evenings to now actively get hated. I don't want to sign up for that. I'm very Dennis, fragile. nobody is going to hate you because you were on an episode of the podcast where I tried to convince you that okay. people shouldn't shift left. All right. All right. I feel... My fears have been allayed. Okay, so don't shift left. You know, shift shift appropriately and and divide up these things to the right task at the right time. I I agree with that. Ten. Ten out of ten, I agree with that. Okay. Did I convince you of anything or you already thought that before? (laughs) Did I convince Uh, you that – let me – let me me recall. I will will say this. I I, I think – I, you know, you are shedding light to the fact that, hey, you know, let's just make sure that we're not cash, like just let's cashing do something in on only new. the on, on the on a motto, right? And we're yeah, we're doing let's this intelligently. do something move. Let's let's leave behind so, a somewhat antiquated premise that I'm not sure was ever quite right. Um, that's used a lot. Hey, the heart, the and, heart was in the right place, and I think yeah, the, the, the logo I, was catchy. Oh, now you're now you're winning me back. Now you're winning me back. Yeah. Oh, no. Um, first, now now you have to. Now you're rating me <laughs> on how much I've convinced you that your premise was not right. Um, I don't know. It's getting less. There's we're getting too many too many levels too of made inception. Up. But you never. Uh, oh, okay, open the secret. By the way, okay, you, hold on. I do were, have to interject here. I'll take the, the way that you. <laughs> the way. How do you, you throw me off every time you pronounce the word meta. How do you I say pronounce, meta. Yeah. Why do you say it that way? Mate, meta? Meta. You meta. say meta? Yeah, it's meta. I think that there's multiple pronunciations. Of I don't know. I don't think, I don't think that this is like the gif jif That's kind of so pronunciation meta? war. Yeah, Which also like, there's two. Oh, you're, yeah, I thought you were going to say it's like, not it's totally, that. Yeah. It's totally jif. Did you know that gigawatts is a real thing too? 
It used what? to be until the 90s, gigawatts was the way you pronounce the word. Or like gigabytes. Mm. Uh, yeah. I don't know that. Meta, deal with no, it. No, I think, yeah. 1.21 gigawatts. Oh That's definitely. I, I really Dr. Emmett took, Brown. Dr. Emmett Brown. How he took this, this turn before to, uh, you could even that. finish the premise of opening up the secret envelope. Okay, I know, I know, I know. I've found all over the, the place. The okay, envelope. here we go. I'm opening it up, all right? Okay, don't distract me with your meta data anymore. All right. Uh, I said 10 out of 10. Kev said that he was, that he believes this. 7 out of 10. Wow. Okay. Why? 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 I feel like seven out of ten for you is a little tepid. I sometimes like you I, I shift kinda... something left. Sometimes you shift it light, right. Sometimes, usually, seven out of ten, you do have to do something a bit earlier. Right? Ninety-nine out of ten. Ninety-nine out of ten. Uh, okay, I'm going to a website that says, "How do you pronounce meta?" Okay. <laughs> I, this is like impossible to find impossible to find just like Google, like google whenever you just google a word it will present you with a definition and that like well, but there's, it does not going to say multiple pronunciations yeah because there's not for this you are the only person i have ever heard pronounce that word that way oh, this is just rude it just threw me off because during the conversation, I didn't want to inter- interrupt when you were on a roll. You, you know, you were hot, you were feeling the topic, and I just didn't want to distract you. But this was, you did it a second time, and I just had to, I just had to, you know, pull the emergency brake. Okay, here's here's why I mispronounce it is because foreign born scientists mispronounce it. Hmm. And I learned that word from my dad. Do you feel good about yourself? <laughs> I, I just, I, I'm not despair. Like, you know, I'm not trying to well, disparage I, obviously, you. No, like, this is a word that is not, is pronounced differently by in foreign English language okay. people speaking. Right. Well, I, per, yeah, all right. If does it, if, would it make you feel better if I told you that a word that I pronounce in a weird way? Uh, you pronounce a lot of words. I just don't call you out on it. I oh, know a ton of words. Dang, jeez. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. No, let's hear it. Yeah, let's. Let's earn my earn my love back, Dennis. Okay, H two O. I pronounce that water. <laughs> That's a, a Philadelphia thing. I don't know. I'm not. My mom was born and raised in New York, so I feel like because they have like Wooter Ice or something like that, mm, right? Or something. Yeah. We're definitely or not... like what's there's like a dessert. Uh, I don't know. I I don't have any family from Philly. The closest family to Philly I have is uh, Wilmington, Delaware. I think I think you're gonna get your own hate mail. I think there's a lot of people saying metadata. Hmm. Also, it's like metadata sounds so much better because it like rhymes. Well, I feel like the last twelve minutes of this podcast have all just been about <laughs> gone off the rails. So if people make it this far into it, I will nobody's their hate mail. Yeah, all right. No well, way. let's let's make it a little bit further. Uh did you get a chance to listen to the throwback episode with Mark Stanislav? Yes, I did. Uh okay. Well I so Mark is a, a, a buddy of mine, not a childhood buddy, but Mark and I had a really great time catching up. He's been a, a friend of mine for a while. And and Mark Stanislav is I I I've been following his his career. I met him as a, a young up and comer in information security, and just continually impressed with with some of his accomplishments, achievements. And we talk about him getting started in it. But man, Mark's Mark's done some awesome stuff. Like uh, 
He's testified at in front of Congress on computer security issues. Um, he's written a great book on multi-factor. If you guys want to go out and uh, read the best book about multi-factor authentication, Mark's book, it's uh, it's a short and to the point and the best book out there about hmm. multi-factor authentication. Um, and then he's also made some really uh, amazing uh, contributions on on security products that you guys may use every day, like the Duo Security, um, you know, multi-factor solution. And he's been working on Cisco products for the last uh, couple of, of years at a higher level. And uh, you know, lastly, um, just you know, some I think he's been kind of he was also very pivotal in the Internet of Things movement of of trying to get. I, I actually just made ice on my GE Opal ice maker that's internet of things connected and i thank mark for the fact that that thing has not gotten hacked yet so uh do you have an internet connected ice maker dennis i do not no not a gadget guy that's the difference that's one of the differences between us i'm a huge gadget guy but Mm. i also uh really uh like this this ice maker it makes a little nugget ice it's so nice uh but (laughs) (laughs) so i'm gonna uh throw it back to uh to to mark uh, Mark and me uh, catching up for a, a segment, and then we'll we'll be right back after that segment. All right, Mark, thank you for making the time. Thanks for having me, Kevin. This is exciting. So you were not in the Quincy Computer Club, but I would consider you an honorary member. Um, <laughs> so you, we're not from the same place. We didn't meet until like spring of 2011 at Nauticon 8 or 9. Probably not a con eight. It was and, in the early uh, days. Yep. <laughs> well, early days for you, like that. That I was a seasoned, you know, veteran of uh, of life at that point. But you had a similar progression as I did. I think as you know, being a, uh, I guess it's it's probably weird to say that uh, com- the word computer prodigy. But you were really into computers as a kid. Started working, you know, like I did with computers. Pretty early, like had some early jobs and stuff. Uh, let's play the game. What the first the computer you had when I met you? I'm I'm not sure, but I recall having a conversation with you very early on about you were messing around with Hackintosh stuff at the time. So like 2010, 2011, you were building kind of like high performance workstations that you could run OS 10 on. Is that accurate? I think so. I think I had a uh, a Hackintosh desktop because I didn't want to pay for an integrated like 5K monitor. So that was kind of my workaround where I could get basically the same performance, a vastly cheaper monitor and the same outcome. So yeah, and I was already like lazy spending money on stuff. But do you have what was your first computer, either the family computer that you started to mess around with intensely or eventually if you're if your folks or whatever were generally like what what was the computer that that you grew up learning computers on? Yeah, so back when CompUSA was still a thing, they actually had an in-house brand called CompuDyne. And that was basically their, um, I guess, beige box uh, equivalent of, you know, a Gateway 2000 or whatever else was cool at the time. And so we had a 386DX processor, no, you know, no clue on RAM. And I'm going to hard drive disk was probably a couple meg or something. But uh, yeah, that was our first family computer dot matrix printer. Uh really ugly beige plastic like desktop console area that was clearly out of the 80s so uh it was a halcyon time but good enough to boot some like sim city man that i I did not i could not even produce the name comp usa until you said it 
But I think they had a Chicago brick and mortar in downtown Chicago. And uh, my dad would take me when I was like 10 or 11 on work trips and would just let me like walk around like Michigan Avenue and stuff like that, (laughs) which uh, I got, I don't know how, but they, but I used to go and that was like one of the, that and the Borders books in downtown Chicago, because the Borders books sold uh, Linux books with media in it. So I would like snag one of those and then come home and like upgrade my OS and stuff. So my uh, yeah, my first Linux distribution, embarrassingly enough, was Mandrake Linux. Uh, that is embarrassing, and it, it is, is super embarrassing. But the reason why is because they had box sets at CompUSA, and I was not quite aware of how easy and free <laughs> software was supposed to be for Linux. And so, convinced my mom to buy me that for no apparent reason, and then. About a week later, I learned that Slackware was a thing and switched over quickly and got it for free. So, so and that actually points out like the five year difference between us is our our limitation of why we needed box sets was because it was so bandwidth intensive over dial up or even ISDN. I had ISDN in like ninety six. So, for us downloading, and most of us started on like Slackware three zero or uh, Slackware ninety six, which was Slackware three one was it was just too hard to to download um you know 86 floppy <laughs> disk images uh over the internet so that that's the that does that does kind of set us apart a little bit of of you um you 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 kind of came up in maybe the late 90s early 2000s as a computer kid yeah so i mean aside from doing dumb stuff on literally AOL uh in like piracy scene groups with like faders of text and stuff and getting kicked off AOL when I was young. Uh, pretty much in middle school, my buddy, Greg, he uh, he was on IRC. And so I think it was eighth grade that I learned about IRC and immediately got on there and spent another probably, you know, 10 years on IRC very, very religiously. So that's kind of how I think I got closer from being a sec- like a computer user to more of a security minded professional where meeting a lot of cool people on IRC and uh, just getting exposure to different technologies and um, people's careers and stuff. You, you don't get that obviously in like high school. So being able to talk to people that are in industry actually doing stuff is like a very cool experience. And, um, you know, just one of those opportunities that looking back is wild, but in the moment seems like no big deal. <laughs> so this is why we, we became such fast friends is because I also was kicked off AOL. Although I think it was just for like swearing online and chat. like and, and then like, I don't think my dad ever noticed or cared or whatever. So like, I, we were just like, oh, CompuServe is better. Oh, <laughs> oh my, my, my mom noticed because uh, I couldn't log into AOL one day and she called oh, AOL support and I heard my name get yelled very quickly. <laughs> um, and, and of course she has no idea what a like a, a fader is or any like any of these like uh used to be able to basically forward emails as the way of transmitting piracy on AOL. Mm-hmm. Uh and so they they would have AOL progs or proggies, just little dumb um visual basic created tools to do bad stuff on AOL. And uh yeah, I got I got termed of service tossed off of AOL for that. And so we had to quickly find a new ISP because we were all on back. Oh, that's so good. Um, so how did you make the transition then? It, well, let me ask you this. So you didn't really have a community of other kids. Like we're, we're talking to some of my buddies that, you know, were a little bit older, a little bit younger. You grew up in 
Um, I think the ent- your entire life, you've kind of been in the Detroit metropolitan area. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I grew so, up in Dearborn, Michigan. Yep. So was there in your kind of network or, I mean, your, your kind of age group, was there other computer kids around? So in elementary school, I had two buddies and I think both of their dads were in some sort of like computer engineering, like probably at Ford, which is the average Mm -hmm. job when you live in Dearborn, Michigan. And so they, their dads were kind of like the tech people. And so by proxy, like we'd get, you know, a totally shareware version of, you know, like Quake or something. And um, one of them got, one of them, Scott, he, he got more into, I think the computer, technical computer side of things. And so him and I were close for a little while. But I think it was probably till middle school, my buddy James, uh, he and I were the ones that were like on IRC first and like, um, yeah, running Slackware and FreeBSD and OpenBSD in middle school and like high school. And, you know, it wasn't probably until that point where I really had a peer that I could like talk to things about that were, mm-hmm. you know, geek, geeked up. And then once I hit high school, there were a few people, like two or three, I think, uh, that, you know, by, by uh, I guess, osmosis of, of nerd stuff, we found out kind of about each other and still friends with most of them today and a couple other stories we should get into later about bad things that happened in high school. (laughs) So you mentioned IRC a a lot already. Was IRC the gravid? I think like for me, it was like running my own mail server, running my own DNS, having my own domain name was the gravitating force. I was on IRC, but I I did that kind of as, as just a downtime thing. It it sounds like IRC and, and maybe some, um, uh, illicit software exchange was was a little bit more your your early driver. Do you want is that is that true? Or do you want to kind of tell the story about how oh, you abs- got into some of this stuff? Absolutely, yeah. No, I mean, piracy was the gateway drug to being a professional, which is so funny, right? Because uh, on AOL there was piracy, and it's it, it looks very serious at the time on AOL, and then you get to IRC and realize that at that time the IRC was where piracy started and stopped. All the uh, you know, they're called scene groups, right? Like the release groups that actually get the software early, rip it, crack it, you know, put up the cool ASCII art, release notes and NFOs. That was, everything was on IRC, right? So I didn't really quite understand supply chains at that point, uh, let alone in the piracy world. So that was kind of an interesting introduction to, um, you know, th- this thing that looks very behind behind the scenes in like the public. But then you're on IRC and you're like, oh, that's the guy that runs that for Fairlight. And this is the guy that does the cracking for this LOL group. Like, it's kind of a weird thing. So on IRC, my buddy, uh, Greg, he's the one that was in a group called KFP Wares on Undernet. And so he brought me in there and um, spent, spent a couple of years making friends there for a while. I, I don't know why it shut down, but it eventually just kind of, I think, faded away. And uh, yeah, that was kind of like a lot of my time was originally on Undernet and then moved over to Ryzen, uh, which I think still actually exists, which I'd never I never heard of. I I, I yeah. was like an undernet to Freenode kind of thing, but so okay. Ryzen is a new one for me. Yeah, a much yeah much classier transition. Uh, no, yeah, so yeah, Ryzen. I I still have to kind of Google around, but I think it's still around. But at the time, Ryzen was like the largest by you know user user count piracy network on IRC. Yeah, and um. Overall, had a had an interesting experience there doing FreeBSD security for all the servers that ran the IRC daemons for for them. Um, but eventually, I, I had read, didn't know at the time, the founder of that network, a guy called Nesson. He actually was from Port Huron, Michigan, as I as I understand. 
And he eventually got convicted of running botnets and doing a loss uh, of competing IRC networks. That was kind of after I left, but I, you know, caught the the articles eventually about that and was like, oh wow, he was so close. We could have been friends minus the federal conviction. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe you lucked out there. So I I guess it's almost necessary at this point to explain IRC to some degree. I mean, it was just internet relay chat. Um, you know, these central servers with good bandwidth would establish a mesh network with a group of other servers and that became a network, right? So basically if you were joining the, uh, I'm pretty sure this is how it worked, but if you were joining the, if you wanted to start a server, you would apply to like the internet, you know, you know, whoever was organizing internet, you'd list the server specs, you'd kind of demonstrate that you were not going to do something that would screw up their network performance wise or otherwise. And then you would basic your server would open up, you know, eight TCP channels to all the other servers and exchange messages between them. So they would you would share a channel space, share, you know, a namespace could communicate with users that were connecting through other endpoint network. Yeah, and a, that, a lot of a, a lot of the time the IRC networks too, it's funny there was so much focus on, you know, are you on like a T three or an OC three or some fractional T one? But most of the time, like the servers were just bad. And so the server would go down even if you had plenty of bandwidth. So I think I think they might have over-prioritized uh, the network for text and should have over-prioritized the, uh, the server reliability and number of UPSs and uh, failover. Mm-hmm. And the, so the, in the piracy scene, and this is stepping out of, I, I just am vaguely remembering, most of it was like these little... TCL pieces of software that looked like users they're called bots and then you could like talk to a one of these bots list what files it had and then you you could request a file if like your ratio was correct or whatever at the time and it would open up a direct a DCC file transport to you that you could get the file back so and it was it was mostly managed by ratio right like the more you contributed to a IRC, um, you know, software exchange network, the more credits you got for, for getting back, right? Yeah, on the higher, I, I guess like the higher end, the better ones, that was definitely the case. On the, I would, I would say the proletariat level IRC networks, which is most of them, usually, yeah, you would either do the DCC and actually have that conversation, as you mentioned, with like the A-drop bot, uh, with, which, yeah, always basically was tickle. And the other side of it would be, you could do like exclamation, and some command, and then that would have the bot reach out to you and like initiate a transfer. And yeah, all this really started, I think, for a lot of people, if you weren't doing the egg drop tickle bot stuff, uh, MIRC, which was like the gold standard Windows fat client for uh, probably still exists today, there was a whole scripting engine built into it. And that was actually one of the other than like HTML and like some JavaScript, that was the first time I actually did any programming was building um, IRC interfaces for, yeah, music players or piracy distribution or taking over channels. So IRC, uh, I guess, was also kind of a first foray for me for programming, at least in complex, like mm-hmm. m- multi-level scripting and stuff. So yeah, before I did like expect, and stuff like that. Yeah, it was like kind of expect language. I mean, I think, yeah, TCLTK and then, and then, but expect was a language too that was very like network, interactive network stuff. 
Um, and I think MIRC scripting engine was looked a little bit like that. But so MIRC is a Windows. Con- so all of this you're doing in Windows 3.11, Windows 95. What, what, what's the time period and, and layout there? So I think I probably stopped using Windows around... 2002 or 2003, kind of like after the first couple of releases of macOS. So this was okay, probably so well into 98 and and yeah. So I think nine, like 99, is kind of t- timeline wise for me like a significant part of IRC. That's kind of like when I was on there a lot and in like in a bunch of groups. Um, so I was running like Linux boxes, but still had like the daily driver. You know, I think it was probably like a, a pirated Windows 2000 copy or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, not long after that, eventually I started moving into the, the daily driver of, uh, you know, a Linux and the Linux or FreeBSD change like weekly because there's obviously so many distributions. Got to catch them all. And then into macOS in like, I don't know, like mm-hmm. late, late high school, early college. What, what were you using? So you started using Linux systems as servers for file transfer, as servers for to run? Because... Egg drop, I know, you know, would compile like we, you would, people would run them out of shell accounts and things like, so that was a, a, uh, I, I think you would, it was a Unix, it was a piece of software that would typically run on a Unix OS. Maybe you could run it on some Windows stuff, but uh, what was the first use case that got you more into what ended up being, you know, the career advantageous skills? Cause I don't think you ever <laughs> made a career out of, out of stealing software as, as much as you made a career out of some of the sysadmin skills and, and pivoting there into security, right? Yeah, I really, I mean, really, it is kind of the um, humble beginnings of running security, not knowing really how security works for a uh-huh. major piracy network. Okay. Uh, eventually, that led to my buddy uh, James and I actually creating a domain, a very short-lived domain for us. But but I still, I actually still have it as my portfolio website uh, called uncompiled.com. and that was really intended to be, and it was for I guess probably four years, like a Unix security news website. And when I say Unix security news, I mean I was just like copying and pasting entire articles from other websites that uh-huh. I thought were cool. Not really understanding that that's like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. A very, <laughs> a very roundabout, bespoke, unauthorized aggregator. Um, and so with with that, I I had been, this is, you know, this is still high school, right? So I'm like trying to figure out side hustle to side hustle, which when I say side hustle, I mean like $50 for something. Um, mm-hmm. There was a, a number of shell hosting companies, obviously in the, late 90s, early 2000s, and have all but gone away today because of, you know, cloud computing. And I had made friends with a few of them through, you know, using their services or knowing them through different IRC networks. And I started charging advertising on my website for like, seriously, like $5 a month to get into like a banner rotation on my website that like four people ever saw. But the one of the organizations, uh, this company called Exhibition Data Communication, the guy Denny over there, he... Uh, he was looking for some help for his shell hosting company. And uh, I was really into FreeBSD doing all kinds of like very like advanced stuff at the time, like mandatory access controls and like port ACLs. And like, um, if you are, you know, anyone that's yeah, the stuff like, that we never got good at, right? Like very intensive, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, I all mean, the that's, stuff that's, that's like, great. Oh, it broke, broke my one web server. Now nah, I'm going to turn that off. Yeah. It like, that's the stuff I was really into. But in the case of shell hosting, like it's, you know, the whole thing about shell hosting is most of the people on there were, probably carding access and, and by carding i mean stealing credit cards for for mm-hmm. gaining access to it uh or stealing paypal accounts uh, a little bit later and so the whole thing about your customer base is you really can't trust them and most of the payment model of a shell hosting company is predicated on the number of background processes so like if you ran an irc bouncer 
which is a thing that would basically let you change your host name to some cool like vanity URL and hide who you are on like an IRC network. Um, that or running an egg drop bot, for instance, or like some piracy bot, you would basically have to charge them per process they were running. Uh, you can understand how inexact of a process that might be. So mm-hmm. a lot of the times with, with what I did on that, that shell hosting company is really get good at doing things like port ACLs where a given user ID could only bind to a certain high number port or they could bind um, you know, certain files as an executable process or yeah. you know, those kinds of things that really in a basic Unix-like environment you just couldn't do. And you really had to have like these mandatory access controls to do so. That's you know that's that's a uh, you know I'm 16 or 17 at that time, doing something that yeah most co- companies don't plan to do today at all. So um, I think that's kind of how I got into it was getting the experience for a very very small paycheck to do that, um, and that was my first job for about 18 months and the first thing I put on my resume. Very cool. Yeah, I mean it's a lot of that stuff is also kind of the building blocks of containerization. I remember like always trying to come up with these strategies of, of um, you know, CH routing and, you know, file system management and what levels you could have on, and, and what. And, and now, <clears throat> even though it's not necessarily always well executed, but, you know, I think a lot of that with, um, you know, kind of was was done well for the first time, maybe in FreeBSD jail and some of the, you know, obviously mainframes, the, the logical computing units within mainframes, but then also, you know, now, now the heavy emphasis on containerization kind of combines a lot of that stuff. So, you know, it's, it's fun to hear about the, the grassroots days of, of, of some of those technologies that really nobody was using. Right. I remember even like file ACLs on Linux were a complete disaster <laughs> when like the first operating system shipped and, and now I, I can't even remember the last time I, I encountered somebody using uh, a, a file ACL on, on Linux versus just the standard, you know, Unix permission control system. So. Oh, um, dude, absolutely. I, I remember relabeling my FreeBSD file systems and you, you had to relabel under a certain security level. So you couldn't reboot uh, and just or you, you had to reboot to actually change the security level. So if you're going to do maintenance on the file system, uh, ACLs, you actually had to Lower the, lower it with the system control uh, setting, reboot, change it, reboot. So it wasn't like this thing that you just did randomly for 500 users on a box. Yeah, yeah, that BSD style of having a kernel parameter that seals at some point when it's set, it seals. That's that's actually something that I, I think I, I always liked about. And I'm I'm more of an I, I I've used my, as a utility OS as a network and, and packet OS open BSD quite a bit more than I've, I've never really messed with FreeBSD too much, but that, that I think was a, uh, uh, it is a very good kind of architectural, uh, element. And I think Linux at some point got like, you could seal kernel modules and things like that for anti-root git protection. I'm sure that I'm sure they did, <laughs> but not sure how often it's used. So in this world of, um, you know, even the legitimate job, managing systems it's it's all connected back to maybe this network of untrustworthy people doing untrustworthy things i mean and there's kind of i i think at the time obviously most of the law enforcement effort till still and still should be today focused on um any type of child abuse stuff that's that's going on i, I and then you know maybe today it's financial crime but back then the biggest financial crime i think happening on the internet was was like copyright violation of software, or at least that was a big chunk of it. So was there any ever type of, of, of kind of 
worry or kind of uh, heat from law enforcement involved in, in any of, of this stuff? I mean, did you know anybody that, that got kind of busted in this, this, uh, this lifestyle or, or what was the, what was that like? Were you ever scared? Yeah. I, you know, the, be, being a child of, you know, the eighties and nineties, uh, the offspring was my guiding light. So, you know, if you're under 18, you won't be doing any time. Right. So, uh, a lot of, a lot of things I did were when I was under 18. So I didn't, I didn't stress too much about those things, even though I probably should have, I would say the, the, the two times I can think of one, one's more of a funny anecdote and the other one's more of a Thing that happened to me, I uh, I had a buddy who reached out on IRC, uh, so someone I just knew from like an online kind of wear scene group, and he hit me up and he said, "Hey, just want to let you know, server got busted. Uh, good luck." <laughs> and I was like, "What are what?" And he just pieced out. Uh, I had his aim. He was on aim as well, and we were friends, so we talked on there. And I was like, "Hey, uh, what are you talking about? What's going on? You busted and he just he just went online. Never talked to the dude again. Don't know if he got busted. Uh, I, I did not get busted, luckily. So that's good for me. Um, but uh, the other, I guess the, the funny story. Wait, just was, before yeah, you move ahead. on on that, on that one, where was that server hosted? Was it a, a, like a service provider that you guys were renting capacity from or what? Man, good, good question. I, it, most, I mean, almost all these things with any scene group is always overseas. No one, no one that was serious about piracy ever had a US based server. So I would guess like, Sweden okay, so it wasn't like in somebody's house. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I mean, usually these are, and again, they're often tied as they're, they're, they're often overseas, but they're also often unauthorized usage of servers. So they're often gotcha. put up on, you know, the back end of a great college network. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you have a friend of a friend who you know, manages the network there and kind of just turns a blind eye, that kind of thing. Ah, okay. Gotcha. Um, and yeah, the other, the other one, this, this dude, I think his handle was Terion. What's up, Terion? Uh, the, <laughs> there was just some day, I don't know why or how it ever happened, but he had a, uh, a server with a couple of us that we'd like kind of used together for different things. And one day we decided it'd be hilarious if we edited, edited the Etsy host file on the, uh, I think it was a FreeBSD box so that his, uh, his interactive session on that box, when he was on there looking at stuff, when he did the who command, one of our IP addresses would show up as resolving to FBI.gov. Oh yeah. So a local, it would just reverse DNS off of resolve or off of the Etsy host file to be like dot FBI.gov. And it was literally just, we didn't, we didn't even like look up like what is a real FBI host. We just did FBI.gov as if that's somehow oh, yeah. where the FBI, the FBI is coming from with a perfect, you know, vanity URL. Uh, and so we were like, Hey, you know, bad things happening. Heard about so-and-so getting busted, you know, better keep an eye on your box, you know, this and that. And I don't know if we prompted him to, or like we took a screenshot and then sent it to him, but we, uh, yeah, we convinced him that the FBI was on his box and not only did he like freak out and just have like, you know, uh, just lost his mind on IRC about what was going to happen. I think he's probably like 15 or 16 too, right? He goes ahead and deletes every bit of piracy he has in his entire life that he's probably been collecting for, you know, four or five years. And as you mentioned at the start, <laughs> uh, band- bandwidth was a bit of a problem back then. And so when you delete, you know, hundreds of megs of files, that's like months of like internet investment on your, on your part. And we waited not super long. I think it maybe like half, half a day. And we were just like, aha, just kidding. And he flipped out for a second time for the reasons that we had tricked him and he deleted all his piracy. Oh, I- 
this is remind. I mean, not not any stakes involved in this. Have you, you know VJ a little bit? My buddy VJ. Yeah. He he worked for me. Uh, we we met in college, and he, and he came in and worked for me at, at the time uh, at uh, at Classified Ventures as as a sysadmin. And I remember that he was uh, he was editing some production DNS records. Um, and he was always a, a little bit skittish around like the the stuff that could bring down networks or whatever. And while he was editing those files, I sent his, I, I logged into his desktop and sent him a write message from his desk, the root user on his desktop that says, you know, this, this production DNS server is now going down for a reboot, <laughs> like unexpectedly. And he did the same thing, like where he flipped, he flipped out first because he thought it was, um, you know, like he had, had done something to reboot the production DNS server. Um, and then the second, when I was like, hey, hey man, it's okay. I was just messing with you or whatever. Then he freaked out again. <laughs> so it's like the exact same one too. Um, yeah. Just this like dumb trick that I, you know, that you think is funny and that, but it, yeah. Which, and, and then, and then a month later, it's super funny to everybody. So I say, keep doing it. <laughs> that that so reminds me of an, another quick story about like the the weird like uh, I guess the 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 moment where you think something bad with a system's happening right is when you get that wall command to the system right because it dings the bell it goes to all terminals and so one of the things I did I was in a uh, a community college class when I was in high school doing this dual movement like computer class thing and there was a SUS Linux box that was like the shell that we had to log into to do something like, programming class. And of course, the first thing I figured out is that it was a super old version of SUS and there was a local kernel exploit the box in this class. And I then immediately started echo walling out to the entire class, like, like stupid stuff like virus found or like system compromise <laughs> or, you know, and the professor has no idea what's going on. And I remember one guy in the back clearly figured out it was me probably because I was giggling like an idiot because I was an idiot. And he starts echoing walling stuff to me passive aggressively. Uh, and so uh, it was like this very weird moment. But yeah, when you're on a system, the most official thing that you could see on a system in a Unix system is like a wall command to the box. Because you're like, oh, oh that's a serious reboot or a compromise or this or that. So your story with VJ is something I used uh, quite often to scare oh, people man. to think some bad, something bad was happening. Here, here's an attack vector that hasn't been used since 1998. You send, like you're on a shell system and you send a write message to the sysadmin, right? But you never control C it out. So you send him a message like, hey, hey, Jeff, what's up? Then you wait like 30 minutes without ever closing that process out. And then you write another line that says message from root at, at the system. Hey, can you change the root password? I'm on another TTY. Can you change the root password to X for me? Right. So the message formatting looks like it's coming, but you just never let that that send stream go. <laughs> so oh, man, it doesn't interrupt awesome. it again. <laughs> it's, oh, that's great. It, yeah, it's one of those. I mean, it's like it's like when people used to throw a bunch of new lines in and then like change the font color to match like the IRC cl client or something. You know, it's like it looks like it's coming in the normal stream of text. Yeah, there's there's a yeah. lot of those, like really Which weird they're, they're, those are that were just not not yeah. existed back then. Inge injection attacks, right? <laughs> I mean, it's like uh, well, you know, I, I, I mean, mean, for the for, for the social engineering aspect of it, just like kind of formatting issues, right? Dude, the the way you just described that, like the one of the hot things right now in security, or I guess more these days, is uh, 
HTTP request smuggling. And I mean, that's mm -hmm. basically the whole, the whole idea, right? Like you have one valid HTTP request, you throw some new line breaks in, throw another HTTP request in, the proxy in front takes the first request, the backend takes a set of the second request, and you do like a, you know, you, you split yep. your request in one actual uh, transaction, right? And so, yeah, all these things, this, this stuff doesn't go away. We just find new and yeah. interesting ways to abuse no, it. No, I, I, I think that we're going to do a whole podcast, uh, and I, I might invite some of you guys of like, we talk about like the top 10 from 1996, and we just talk about how they've evolved and not gone away. So, um, Mark, I, it, I, I think you've got a million more of these, so we're definitely going to do a, a second one with, with you to follow up, but this has been great. Thank you so much for, uh, uh, for sharing some of these stories and, and thank your, your parents for, for putting, you know, for them putting, putting up with you and, and not sending you off to military school. So I, I thank them every day. Thanks for having me, Kevin. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> I look forward to doing it again. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Mark. Bye. Thanks, Kevin. Dennis. What do you think about Mark's throwback episode? I love all these throwback episodes um, that I've been listening to thus far because it always uh, triggers like some just piece of nostalgia uh, for me that I just hadn't thought about uh, in forever, right? And just folks kind of talking about how they got into it and what areas of the early internet that they were involved in. And so, uh, you know, in this one in particular, when he was talking about sort of piracy and it, I just remember it, when my brother Pat went away to college, I remember talking to him on the phone when he's there and he's describing that college is amazing because they have the internet and it's got bulletin boards on there and people just post free hacked or cracked games. And I just remember like not understanding he called what web I, pages bulletin boards. No, there was like bulletin boards. <laughs> You know, oh. that was like a form of like communication and uh, like people would go up and like put a push pin through a zip disk. Like, <laughs> no, like a, some oh. sort of online bulletin board. Oh, right? OK. OK. Yeah. And uh, I remember him coming home for uh, for Christmas break and he brings his computer home and like, you know, you're like opening up the readme files in there. It's got all that cool ASCII art for the different different cracking groups and everything like that. And uh so that was one thing when he was like talking about piracy that I, th I thought was great. Um, I definitely missed the, you know, the whole like IRC. I was never an IRC guy. And so that always felt like something that I missed out on um, mm -hmm. for early internet. You know, it was like. Uh, Still exists. Yeah. But like, you know, AIM was, uh, <laughs> AIM totally was sort of my first foray into. You're more of a peer to peer guy. You like to bring it in close. <laughs> but uh, so like there, there was that. And um, I think the other thing that I liked was, you know, um, for for a professional industry, you know, like just the the messing with your fellow colleagues. I just I'm wondering if like that happens in other outside of like compute like you know, kind of like computers security where you guys were talking about, oh yeah, we, we said, we made this elaborate ruse at work to pretend, you, you know, you were saying like mm -hmm. you messed with VJ, right? And, and, uh -huh. and uh, <laughs> who recently listened to the, to the podcast yes. and, and uh, was very complimentary. So. Yeah. Yeah. VJ. Then, Shout out to VJ. And Mark, you know, was just sort of talking about messing with like the guy and the other, uh, you know, like his, 
the the other piracy guy and (laughs) the fbi was on him so just was like making me laugh you know i'm sure that it does happen but um like with ragging on other people and and sort of pulling their leg and whatever but um definitely i feel like it might happen a lot more in this industry i don't know yeah like uh well you know you hear about like also like hollywood actors that are real pranksters on set right apparently george clooney is a real prankster and uh yeah, those are, those are great stories. Kev, are you the George Clooney of computer security? Is that what we're working our way towards? Perhaps. Hmm. Perhaps I might be the Clooney. I do have the, the salt and pepper when I'm a much younger age. So. <laughs> actually, he, he actually grayed up pretty young. So, yep, on track. That checks out. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, uh, great talking to you, Dennis. I, I really appreciate you uh, you finally making time to record this episode. <laughs> No problem. My pleasure. Bye.